0: Well, we're back. With everything going on in the past few weeks, I decided I couldn't leave this new podcast series on the SEC at just a mere three episodes. In fact, the fast-moving nature of recent developments regarding the shifting nature of SEC compliance ensures the continuation of this series for some time into the future, I imagine. So what happened, you may ask? Well, for most of our listeners, I'm hoping this is old news you've already heard, but just in case not, and quoting directly from an SEC press release dated October the 30th, the SEC today announced charges against Austin, Texas-based software company SolarWinds and its chief information security officer, Timothy G. Brown, for fraud and internal control failures relating to allegedly known cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities, end quote. Wow. Welcome to the world in practice as we discussed in theory in the earlier episodes of this series. While the breach itself dates back to 2020, the consequences linger into 2023 and act as a dire warning to our entire profession. The SEC has become determinedly serious about holding both us and the companies we serve accountable for the results of our conduct, not just our efforts. What does this really mean in practice? If you are breached— You need to be able to defend your prior actions and those of your company and be able to justify your decisions and actions accordingly, and potentially to ultimately establish in a court of law, beyond a reasonable doubt that you did everything you should have, could have, and might have, been able to do in an effort to avoid that breach. The question to pose now is, do I have sufficient insight into our total level of risk that the executive team, including me and the board of directors and everyone else, are comfortable with the level of risk we are running. And if not, what more can be done to quickly and effectively and at what additional cost that level of risk to within our tolerances? If you do not receive support to drive this conversation to a conclusion and the support to implement those decisions to protect the organization properly, then you are now at personal risk. As cybersecurity professionals, we are entering a new age of accountability. Lawyers and accountants are more accustomed to this idea since their license licensed to practice and either personal, criminal, or civil liability for malpractice are always at risk. This is because as a licensed profession expected to perform high-quality work with integrity and professional insight that meets established professional standards, others rely on that advice and counsel to make decisions. That is to say their professional word and bond matters. And ours should and now does matter to a meaningful extent and more than ever before. Perhaps as a profession, we were regarded by other executive peers as dispensing guidance more than informed advice or counsel, with which the organization should comply, perhaps, or not. In the view of some, the CISO could provide expertise that the business would receive, but then ultimately do with it as they preferred, But at least we dispensed it. In your experience, is this how you treat legal or accounting advice? In my consulting with scores of large enterprises globally, I have witnessed how lawyers and accountants rely on their professional codes of ethics and practice, their standards, and their knowledge to direct the company to an informed decision, and often, quite aggressively, I have seen both of these professions in an organization be willing to bet with their jobs if they feel their advice is being ignored and that the risk of regulatory action could engulf them in a professional scandal from which there could be serious personal consequences up to and including the loss of a license to practice. This creates both a certainty and a determination amongst those professionals to prevail over their peers. Do you feel we act the same way as security professionals? Are we sufficiently authoritative and informed to create an aura of credibility and integrity in our advice that the business accepts? Frequently in my experience, this is not the case, and often because we ourselves have painted cybersecurity risk as a technical challenge rather than as a pervasive and persistent business risk for which responsibility belongs to the entire organization. The CISO should only be the control point versus the single point of responsibility, The role should organize the whole company around building and sustaining a security-first culture that operates internally with a robust protective posture designed to mitigate breach risk instead of accepting the litigation risk that will arise if that breach happens. This SEC enforcement action rejects the premise that the CISO dispenses their best advice, but the business decides on the course of action. Instead, we need to prevail or bet with our jobs and leave. That is a starkly different reality for many of us. We are no longer just advocating for doing what is right. We must insist on it happening. Or we leave the employee in the ultimate resignation and recognition that our license to practice, per se, is not worth the risk of being pursued personally for criminal and civil legal responsibility for the inaction or rejection of our best-informed professional advice. And that is really different. And this new reality increases the stakes for all concerned. Let's consider the dynamic of the typical executive meeting. I am sure if the lawyer or accountant in the room says something, what follows is a deep debate about the value of their advice, right? Are they really right? Are you sure? Well, what I saw on the internet. Does this lawyer actually know what they're doing? Should we get a second, third, or fourth opinion? Nope. Doesn't happen, actually. Well, we ask questions to learn more about the why of the advice. The what is rarely directly challenged, and this is because as trained professionals, they have the benefit of insights into legal precedent or pending litigation, maybe it's audit standards or IRS tax code knowledge, or other elements of expertise and expert opinion we defer to and respect. So now we turn that lens to security. You indicate your executive peers that the organization needs to do ABC123 in order to be able to mitigate the risk of a cybersecurity attack more thoroughly. They hem, they haw, they challenge the cost, demand justification for the actions you recommend, and maybe are or are not willing to put it into the budget. Can't we do this for less, they ask, treating your recommendations as a cost rather than as an investment? You realize quickly that this is not the same as a lawyer dispensing legal advice, who suggests risk mitigation tactics to be taken in the present to avoid litigation in the future. There is a cause and effect which is understood with the advice of the lawyer in the room, but defeated by the same respect being delivered to you. Strange, isn't it? Both the lawyer and the CISO are arguing for investments to be made in risk avoidance, which is often a difficult premise to fund, actually. Why? Because we are asking for resources to avoid the potentiality of a negative event versus its realization that ultimately may never occur, especially if we're good at our jobs. Ironically, proving the value of our investments is to never realize the negative event itself. Yet when that negative event randomly occurs despite our best efforts, the conclusion is that our investment did not have any result and was of no value, suggesting they regret trying to spend anything to avoid it at all. This is a difficult corporate conundrum to resolve and is the essence of the dilemma that cybersecurity professionals always face. Our advice is to avoid a potential event that may or may not ever occur almost in spite of our best efforts. Yet legal advice is the same, isn't it? We are investing in practices to mitigate our risks instead of litigating those risks. Why isn't security interpreted the same way? To continue this analogy, in law, we assume the probability of being liable for consequences if we break the law is 100%. So we invest to avoid the potentiality of violating that law to the best of our ability so that we not get charged or sued. Yet, we suggest the same level of acceptance of our professional advice as professionals to avoid the consequences of a breach, and our request is treated as a discretionary cost versus a required investment to avoid consequences. The rationale for this may have to do with the maturity of the profession itself. We have a long actual proof of what happens when we ignore legal advice. It usually results in negative consequences. So we accept that a proactive investment to avoid legal risk is a smart and necessary investment. And so legal professionals are more mature and well-established compared to security as a profession. So that may explain some of it. Or, like teaching because everyone has been a student, maybe they assume they can teach. But try it. Not as easy as it looks. Maybe because everyone uses technology, they all assume they have the same expertise, and this entitles them to challenge our professional opinion. They are, after all, technology users. What is materially different, then, under the control of security professionals that we could do differently to help? First of all, it may begin with our estimation of our professional advice. Do we really stand by what we recommend as being completely and optimally necessary? Are we prepared to put our professional reputation on the line and insist that this advice be taken? And are we willing to run the co-risk of being sued personally when dispensing this professional advice? We may want to ask Timothy G. Brown that very question, if he would honestly answer it. But also for each of us, there's a material question and also a lesson therein. In his shoes, what might we have done differently? because he is hardly the only CISA with two stories to tell that might differ based on the audience being addressed. But should that be the case? Shouldn't we be consistent? He faced an internal rejection of his observations and recommendations that SolarWinds, as a corporation, was not either as safe or secure as it purported to be publicly, but in private, he acknowledged that it was not properly meeting expected levels of maturity in its security controls. Those aren't the same thing. Yet, Publicly, he was willing to attest to a different perspective, the one shared with investors and regulators. He wanted to be part of the executive team of this growing company that represented itself as cyber-safe and reliable for customers to buy from. But it turns out this was not the case, so who shoulders the blame? Especially as a publicly traded company where trust from clients and consumers is paramount, he likely felt obligated to support this important public perception But was it real? Have you as a professional insisted upon and been granted the opportunity to do everything you can to avoid the risk of a breach? Do your executive peers take this advice as sacrosanct and informed to the point where they defer to your professional expertise or not? Because if the stories are different, that is not cool with the SEC and it will attract consequences. We've now seen that. The question lingers. In this new world, who are we to become? Are we a respected profession with the complete support of our peers and the ability to offer informed professional advice? Or are we continually fighting a battle to establish the value of our advice to avoid a catastrophic event that ultimately may happen anyway and likely cannot be prevented? Because if so, maybe just accepting this risk instead of mitigating it may seem like it makes more sense. And that's dangerous. Like other professions before us, we need to address the issue of providing advice that requires resources in the form of time and money to avoid a perpetual business risk that will never be zero, but is random in its pernicious appearance. It may or may not ever be, but in my view, it is always better to mitigate than litigate. And I think the C-suites of particularly public traded companies are rapidly moving towards that conclusion as well. We have felt it in our own company. We see it. Certainly, the SEC has made its position on that clear. We all need to do everything we can do. If we make no effort to mitigate, we save money, obviously. Yet the risk and ultimate liability for the event increases dramatically. And we may be held accountable both personally and corporately by the SEC if this event occurs. On the other hand, we may avoid this statistically random event and be lucky enough for it to never occur, making our resistance to increased investment prophetically smart. This is quite a realistic dilemma in a profit-driven corporation. We must contain costs to increase profits, right? Makes sense. Instead, what if we could persuade the business that cybersecurity costs were an investment in proven risk mitigation that were worth investing in against the potentiality of an attack? What would that look like? And this is where the story concludes for now. When is enough enough? Or is enough never enough? Provocative questions indeed, but necessary to pose. In a world where the risk of a cybersecurity attack can never be zero, and as a result, the professional likelihood of facing an attack at some point in your role as a CISO is the same, this event cannot be underestimated. Yet if it occurs, the real question will likely be, was it just simply bad luck? Or would it have occurred anyway in spite of your best efforts? And you will have to defend this accordingly with your professional insight, including the demonstrable support from your peers, indicating you all did everything you could to have prevented it. Is that what you can attest to? If not, the remaining choice is to resign to avoid the consequences of not being supported internally to mitigate this risk and instead resulting in litigation that is not only against the corporation, but also against you personally. Is that risk worth it to you? This episode of iq for You was produced by me, Adam Dashew, with special thanks to our host and content developer, Dr. James Norrie. All rights for this podcast are reserved to CyberCon IQ, Inc., and you can listen to this podcast for free on any of your favorite platforms, or by visiting us at cyberconiq.com.